This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. I should note our discussion is not tied to the offer of safe investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wizard Chief Affiliates. I'm sitting down with Tom Barkin, who's the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. Tom, we're here at the, at the uh, Monetary Policy Conference, Rocky Mountain Conference in Idaho. Uh, it's great to have you here. Glad to be here. Um, so you had one of your first live interviews on Bloomberg TV today. Uh, we're, we're talking, so we're sitting down about we're at an interesting state of monetary policy. A lot of people are adjusting their views of what is the Fed going to do, looking at the state of the economy. What is your read on the state of the economy, and what are the factors that are going into the Fed's decisions here? So I start with uh, consumer spending. It's 70% of the economy. Uh, and consumer spending is incredibly strong. I had together a bunch of CFOs from a bunch of consumer companies two weeks ago. And uh, they just couldn't have been more pleased with the participation of the American consumer in the economy. And why wouldn't there be? Unemployment is at all-time lows, 33.6%, Savings rates are higher than they were 10 years ago, almost double. Uh, And credit markets are open. And so the consumer is spending, and that's uh, uh, 70% of the economy. It's a very good uh, baseline. I talked about labor markets, uh, unemployment 3.7%. Uh, wages up 3.1% year over year. So the uh, the labor market is also uh, very strong. Uh, inflation is a touch under what we would target. We would target 2%, and it's in the range of 1.6 to 1.7%. Uh, percent. And then uh, the one place I'm worried about is business confidence and business investment. Um, businesses are nervous because of market volatility, because of international weakness. Uh, because of trade issues, uh, because of political issues. And the ones I talked to who you might expect as strong as the rest of the economy is would be leaning forward are actually not leaning forward. They're, they're not leaning backwards. They're not cutting back yet. But they are cautious. Uh, and they tell me they're nervous about where things are going. And we're starting to see that show up in the business investment data. Yes, yeah, so we hear that the Fed is data dependent. And so very data dependent. Now, the economic data today looks good, but it's really this confidence about the future that is the data that you're looking at that's a little bit weaker? Yeah, of course, we're perfectionists. We want everything to be uh, great. So the business investment data definitely has been coming in a little weaker than we would like and certainly than it was last year. And then inflation, as I mentioned uh, earlier, has been stubbornly just below our 2% target. And so a number of us look at that and wonder if we'd like to have a symmetric performance of inflation around our 2% target, how do we get just a little more inflation in the system? 
Now, you, at the speech today you gave at the conference, you talked about inflation. You know, if you took away the decimal points, mm -hmm. you know, that you could be rounding up towards, and you're not that far from inflation target. But right. is, when you think about undershooting inflation for the last decade at, at the Fed, do you think you really are undershooting? Is there reasons why it could be persistently low? Or, or how do you just view the, 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 the longer term inflation outlook? Yeah. Well, so I'd start by saying I grew up in the 70s. And in the 70s, if you had told some future person, maybe in a back to the future kind of setting, that you were going to show up and inflation was going to be 1.7% and people would be disappointed, they would have giggled. Yeah. Because uh, our predecessors over 40 years have done just a brilliant job of adjusting inflation back toward our target um, from levels of 7, 8, 9, 10% to to 1.7, 1.8. That's an incredible accomplishment. And one of the great accomplishments that I believe the Federal Reserve's had in the last 50 years. So uh, I do put it all in context. That said, we've articulated a target of 2%. We've articulated a metric, the core PCE price index. And to the extent that it's 1 1.8, 1.7, 1.8, 1.9, 1.8, 2.0, 1.9, 1 we've got to ask ourselves yeah. the question, what would it take to get it to 2.1, 2.2, 2.3? You know, there's some people who say inflation is just going to be permanently low forever. Mm -hmm. And so we're in this new regime, can't see inflation going up. Is, what would be the case if you were to try to argue that side? What are the strongest forces that are keeping inflation so low? Well, I do think inflation's low, and I actually treat that as a victory, not a defeat. Yeah. That is, you know, our mandate from Congress is stable prices. We've spent 50 years convincing people we really mean it. And now I think we've got stable prices. So first of all, good thing, not bad thing. Um, what's keeping it low? The first thing is expectations. I mean, people really do believe that we're serious about a 2% target. So when I was in business and we talked about our prices, uh, should they raise at inflation or just above inflation? Wait, we've got to increase prices because there's inflation. We had this conversation constantly. And I think American businesses do too. But nobody thinks inflation is going to be 7%. And as a result, people don't start with a baseline of 7%. So first thing that's kept it steady is expectations. Uh, the second thing is uh, there's a, better, a bunch of powerful uh, forces in the real economy that are disinflationary. Uh, think big box retailers and their ability to negotiate. Think global sourcing, the ability to source from Vietnam or Malaysia or China. Um, uh, the internet. The internet, transparency is another great one. Uh, the power of purchasing organizations and the talent that now exists in purchasing organizations who have as their mission to try to make sure they keep price increases low. All these things are driving uh, disinflationary forces. Um, regulation in certain places, uh, if we push harder on healthcare, uh, for example. Even the tax cut had disinflationary moments. My utility actually just sent us a check back saying, you know, we passed on mm -hmm. this tax reduction to ratepayers. So all those things have impact on, in, on inflation, and that's what we're fighting. Uh, I wouldn't say fighting against because those are good things at some level, but that's that's the challenge we fight as we try to move inflation back toward target. And they, they have to factor into how you think of the natural real rate of interest. Like what is neutral for the Fed, right? And you, before it used to be 4%, they keep bringing it down. I think mm -hmm. today's quote unquote neutral rate is two and a half. Is that right? And, and well, if you if you look at the uh, dot plots, uh, and each of my colleagues and I submit every quarter dot plot, uh, and we try to estimate some of these factors, recognize they're unknowable variables. Yeah. They're things you only observe in the wild. Uh, but I'd say the median tendency was somewhere in the two and a half to three and a quarter uh, sort of range for what's the neutral rate of, of interest, and we'll learn as we go along.
Yeah, so we could be keep notching it down, and uh, and we'll and we'll see we'll see where that goes. Well, the the way you look at it is, how does the economy respond to the current rate of interest? And so you, you, we are living in a world where you learn by doing. And so uh, you know we're in a two two point four, I think, rate of interest right now in the Fed funds rate. How do you think the economy is responding? That's information that goes into the various models that help inform us. Now, now, Professor Siegel really would love to be here. He's been on our show with a lot of the other Fed speakers, but he couldn't get down to this conference, and we could have him call in. But the he, you know, at the end of December, we had Loretta Mester in the studio, and he was adamant, pounding the table, you guys made a mistake, you shouldn't have hiked, you're not reading the markets correctly. And he's been calling, actually, for, for a while now, for about 50 basis points cuts, because he looks at the curve inverting as a mm -hmm. problem. And so he said, if you, if you, if you told the Fed it was going to go from a 280 10-year to a 2% 10-year, they wouldn't have hiked. Now, that's, you know, the big expectation now is they're going to hike it July. How do you think about that in inversion? Is that a worrying sign? Is it, you know, Bullard, when he's been on the show in the past, has said, I was at the Fed when Bernanke said inversion didn't matter. Mm -hmm. I was there before when, I think, when he said Greenspan said it didn't matter. Mm -hmm. it, and he's like, I'm not going to make the mistake. So how do you think about that? Uh, so... I'm sure most of your listeners know uh, the definition of inversion, but I'll just yeah. start with a little bit of the facts, which is um, uh, if the 10-year bond rate is lower than the two-year bond rate, that's called an in inversion. Normally, it's higher because people need to get paid money to have their money locked up. Uh, but if it's lower, people would say that's a problem. Um, uh, the two-year, 10-year inversion, that's predicted seven of the last six recessions in the U.S. So it's not perfect. Yeah. By the way, it's rate out – It's uh, uh, performance outside the U.S. is 50-50, okay? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, people like me look at markets and pay attention to markets, but we also have to ask the question of what's going on when it gets near inversion. And I would, I should probably also caution and say it has not yet inverted the 210. Um, uh, there are others that have inverted the three-month, 10-year, but those don't have the same evidential uh, predictive power. And so the one that has the seven out of six predictive power if you put power into that, hasn't yet inverted. Um, why might I think about it different today than before? And I, I believe in taking lessons from the past, and I also believe in not being a slave to the past. Uh, the biggest thing that I would point to, and this also has implications for inflation expectations, is that the 10-year bond uh, and the term premium on that bond is shockingly low, right? Normally, even in a healthy market, you get paid a premium to have your money tied up. Right now, we have a situation where people are paying money please tie up my money. And that surprises people like me. And of course, what's going on is um, in the economy we live in today globally, um, if you are at all nervous, right, there's one place where you can put your money where um, you have confidence the currency is going to exist tomorrow. You have confidence in the rule of law and has significant liquidity to take all the money you'd, you'd like. And by the way, because the U.S. economy is stronger than most international economies, it also uh, has a higher interest rate. And so whenever anything negative happens in the world, you can look at the U.S. 10-year uh, bond and boom, the money yeah. flows in and the, and the yields go down. So I'm a little cautious about taking too much signal when I know that there's this global rate, global thing. And that's not something that was true 20 years ago when Greenspan had whatever conversation yeah. it was. That is a relatively new phenomenon. So 
I pay a lot of attention, but I don't try to take direction from the markets. I try to take information from them. Yeah, we've talked about that that sort of almost maybe all-time low on term premiums from some mm-hmm. of the European bonds yeah. uh, on one of our recent shows with a European economist. And, you know, that is one of the more interesting dynamics. They, they would have taught in the textbooks you can't go past the zero lower bound, and we have these German bonds at negative 50 and the Swiss, Swiss bonds negative hundreds of basis points. I mean, mm-hmm. now – you talked about at the conference today about the zero lower bound and worries about is it effective to go to negative rates. Um, so you, you know, the Fed studied this 10 years ago and decided not to do it. Is you know the ECB is out there with papers justifying how they think that it hasn't been hurtful, but of course they're going to you know mm-hmm. at least do some research saying why they think. Wh- what do you what's what do you think about this negative rate policy? Well, I'll start with the question of. Uh, Clearly, at 2.4%, we are closer to the zero lower bound than we were going into the last downturn. So were we to have a downturn, uh, we would have roughly two and a quarter uh, basis points of reductions we could do, which would be less than the reductions we did then. Um, And so uh, I worry, and I think others too, about what other ammunition might we have. We have forward guidance. That's something that worked pretty well the last time. We have quantitative easing, something I also believe had real impact. Uh, the last time. Ten years ago, we considered going to negative interest rates. Uh, we're, at, we're in the middle of a monetary policy review framework review where we will look at all of the various ideas, including negative rates. Uh, and I'm open conceptually to anything. I have to say I'm pretty skeptical that it's the path to go. There were real reasons not to do it the last time. And you could argue we've done an experiment in Europe for the last 10 years, and I don't look at that and say, awesome, let's go Let's go become Europe. Same as Japan, just to a different Japan's degree. done the same thing. There, if you go into the academic literature, there is some interesting stuff about what they call multiple equilibria near the zero lower bound, that you might take it all the way down thinking you're going to goose things up, but sometimes you take it all the way down and it stays down. Yeah. And so I think it's a credit to the strength of the U.S. economy, also the foresight of decision makers uh, before me, that our economies actually come back up. But I don't look at Europe and say, that seems like a huge success we need to adopt. Let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Tom Barkin, the president of the Richmond Fed. And, you know, th- we're talking about the monetary policy outlook. You know, we one of the comments you made at the conference today was that you can talk yourselves into this self-fulfilling recession. And do you worry, you know, that we highlight this, this sort of downbeat mm-hmm. pet, you know, discussion and sort of the Fed talking it down in a way? Do you worry about that? So I'd say the mindset of both consumers and businesses is more fragile today than it's been historically. Um, Part of that is a hangover from 10 years ago. Uh, My dad was a depression child, and that stayed with him for 60 years. So maybe it's possible for the Great Recession to stay with us for 15. Uh, Part of that is that um, businesses are more levered than they were before. Consumers have more exposure uh, to the stock market. Uh, I think reaction function in business is faster, activism and all of that kind of stuff. But, and I'd also say this is now the longest upturn on record. And you just talk to businesses and they say, it's got to end sometime, doesn't it? And so all this stuff makes people just more fragile and just more uh, nervous about what they do. Um, again, as I talk to businesses, they haven't yet moved to this, yeah. but they're nervous. And so if the wrong set of stuff starts to hit, you could imagine it wouldn't be ridiculous. Um, you know, businesses cutting investment or even cutting jobs. And if they cut jobs or consumers believe their jobs are at risk, they might cut back on spending and then 70% of the economy, you know, gets weaker. So that could happen. Again, I don't think it's happening yet, 
but that's something I'm very much watching. There was two positive things I saw today. You know, on the other, on the other, on the more optimistic side, Bill you're not including my speech or anything. No, I, yeah. Bill Bill Dunkelberg talked about uh, the sort of small business tracking 30 million yeah. small businesses, 45 percent of GDP, and he was showing the optimism for these small businesses being really, really high. Is that something that that it, you guys are watching? It is high, and I talked to uh, a benefits provider this week who's. Uh, core business is small business nationally. Uh, and he said their pipeline's never been stronger. So he was very keen on small business performance, small business optimism. Remember, a lot of them aren't as exposed to trade. They're actually not as focused on sort of big mega global events. They're focused on their own business. And if you wander around, as I do, in, the di in my district and talk to people about how's their business going, to a person, people say good things. Yeah, local right. U.S. is good. It's the global, the global economy, the global slowdown that seems to be worrying people. And and, in, and even those folks who don't, who are global, but who, I'm sorry, even those folks who are big but don't have international operations, they feel their business is very good too. So again, we don't have to talk ourselves into a recession. Yeah. We could actually revel in where we are. What do you think about the housing? Uh, there was a chart today from mm -hmm. one of the other Fed economists who said housing is still underperforming. There's this optimistic trend of millennials, the demographics that the most age populations, the 27 year olds and they're gonna, the, that mm -hmm. generation millennials are gonna overtake the baby boomers. And is that a positive risk upside for the economy yeah. coming? I, I do think there's upside in housing. Remember, housing is only about 4% of GDP. Uh, when you put it in a bunch of CDOs, it's a lot bigger issue, which we haven't done as far as I know. But, um, uh, but what's happened in housing is a little odd because uh, volumes are not that strong, but prices are strong. So normally if it was a demand issue, you would see volumes off and prices off. What you're seeing is volumes off and prices up. And what that is is about supply. Mm. So uh, we're, we're short construction workers in this country. Uh, those that we have are going first to big commercial projects or big highway projects, and there's a lot of spending going on there. And what's getting squeezed is residential construction. And so if you have fewer places and your demand sets prices up, and that the increase in prices is then bringing back volume. So I do think there's an upside as housing gets built, as millennials do marry, have kids, decide they want to move into housing. The other thing I'd say is I don't think we'll ever have a mindset on housing the way we did 20 years ago, though. Part of it is the scarring from the last recession. But part of it is, in my generation, we all grew up knowing that our parents made a fortune on their house. They bought it you know, when interest rates were 2%. Interest rates went up to 12%. Um, and inflation was very high. They sold out. They just made a, a fortune. So why wouldn't you do that? I think today's millennial has a very different point of view on a house as they don't see it as a wealth creator. They see it as a place to live, and they make a different set of decisions accordingly. That'll be interesting to keep keep tabs on. Um, yeah. One of the other topics that's hot in the you know general media and came up at the conference today is central bank independence. And mm -hmm. uh, Paul McCulley was talking a lot about it. Sort of the last time the Fed had a big parameter change, sort of resetting the rules, was 1978, 40 years ago, where we had big inflation problems. You got independence, and uh, Volcker created a recession, brought brought down inflation, and he looks at really a regime change coming, um, thinking that there's a lot of narrative that the Fed is stoking inequality through the asset purchase program, um, and that, that there should be a third sort of metric on inequality. Any, any commentary around his, his discussion today there? Well, uh, we do have a mandate that came from Congress. It is maximum employment, stable prices, uh, moderate interest rates. 
and we do our best to work against that mandate. Um, and I mean, I watched some of the testimony yesterday. My sense is Congress is pretty satisfied with what we're doing against that mandate. I hope they would be. 3.7% um, unemployment, 3% growth last year, 1.7% uh, inflation. Those are pretty good numbers against that mandate. So my hope is they're comfortable with it. But we take very seriously our responsibility to Congress and the American people to work to deliver against that mandate. And if Congress wants to open that up and say we should do something different, that's their prerogative. Uh, I don't think he quite got right uh, the 78. I would say uh, Dodd-Frank was a significant reopening of the banking supervision part uh, of our mandate. And there are many uh, examples like that through, through the years. So we do take uh, direction from Congress uh, and would. In terms of um, Actually, I forgot the second part of your question. So that, that that's about the the inequality. The would they add a oh, metric inequality. to help focus on on inequality? Uh, I mean, I think inequality is a very important issue for our economy. It hasn't been obvious to me that the level of interest rates is what's driving uh, inequality. Uh, I saw some very interesting stuff by the OECD recently, comparing us to other countries, and it pointed very strongly at educational levels and educational performance. And in our and that's not something we control, but it's a very important topic. And in our country, uh, which actually pioneered in a lot of places, public schools, land-grant colleges, you know, that people would get a full education, our educational performance has really plateaued over the last uh, generation uh, in a way that other countries have not. And you'll see much more income mobility in countries that have much higher performance on the education side. Now, it brings up another topic, education. I mean, I know you're on the Emory, you're a trustee at Emory mm -hmm. University and, and on the board there. And student debt is one of those issues that people say is a hangover for our economy. And also in the political world, you're seeing a lot of commentary about what we should get rid of student debt. Um, any com any commentary there? We've had Pat Harker on the show before, mm -hmm. and he, as the former dean of Wharton, our school here hosting our show, um, I was surprised to hear he say less people should go to college and that more people should go to apprenticeship programs, partly a student debt issue, partly just to get more actual workers into yeah. the field quicker. And any views on all that? Well, so you can think of student debt as a financial stability issue. Uh, you can also think about it as a um, education performance, health of the consumer sector issue. Uh, on the first, uh, I do think there are real issues at the level of uh, student debt. Um, I don't think the total amount of student debt out there is sufficient to be a risk to the banking system or anything like that. But it is the kind of thing we and others in the regulatory side pay attention to. On the consumer side, there's no question that we've got a, a number of people in a generation that have taken on student debt um, without the corresponding performance. Um, what I'll bet uh, President Harker was talking about is 40% of the people who enter college don't graduate. Um, and that was a number I didn't know in my former life, but it's shocked me because um, there's no question if you graduate from a four-year school, your life outcomes are better, whether they be wealth or health or income, employability, resiliency in a downturn. But those benefits don't accrue to you if you go to college and don't graduate. And by the way, a lot of those folks you know, end up with a lot of debt, which holds them back as well. Um, I, I'm not sure I'd say fewer people should go to college, but I do think there's a real conversation about the people who go to college, what are we doing to help get them through in the right way? And I've heard of some very interesting uh, programs. Uh, Navigate Tennessee has a program, Tennessee Navigators, that helps people you know, who get through it, not just enter it. I think that's a very right place because that investment, that debt, pays off if you graduate. It doesn't pay off if you don't. 
Now, one of the things that uh, we've, we've had the Philadelphia Fed economists on and somebody who focused very much on the community development side of the Philadelphia Fed and some of the research on the d sort of high paying jobs that they think more people should try to get into. And, and they're going they're trying to go against that narrative, you know, of mm -hmm. inequality that they're trying to actually help close the gap. Um, is there things that the Richmond Fed or things that you're passionate about, other research projects that most people don't hit on on the day to day monetary yeah. policy side that you're focused on? So against the same uh, concept, we've done a lot of work on the difference between big cities and smaller towns. Uh, in our district, you know, does have a few big cities, but has an awful lot of smaller towns. Uh, in our district, employment to population, as a pretty reasonable metric for folks like us who focus on maximum employment, is 11 points higher in the bigger cities than it is in the smaller towns. And of course, in those bigger cities, you've got inner cities that don't do as well as the range. So if you're in a smaller town, your, your outcome performance is not nearly what it needs to be for our economy to continue to grow and bring people in off the sidelines. Um, so we've been researching that. There is a big piece of it, which is education, 17-point uh, gap in uh, bachelor's degree uh, performance. That starts all the way back in preschool. And so actually, if you look at pre-K, you get a gap that continues on through the entire educational system. So that's a place there are states that have done universal pre-K, and we're researching those sorts of uh, things. Um, in as hot as economy is, in as hot as our economy is, there's also an opportunity to think about community colleges, business partnerships. This is some of what I'll bet you the Philadelphia Fed was talking about: construction, truck drivers, yep. nurses. These jobs are very hot. Jobs are going unfilled. They pay very well. And you don't have to have a four-year degree to get there. And so how do we help fund more certificate programs that help people get into those uh, programs? And also, how do we help people navigate their way through? Because a lot of times, these are not 18-year-olds straight out of high school. These are people who are 25 or 27, have a family, have other obligations, who are trying to work their way into uh, a better professional outcome. A uh, third issue we talk about a lot is isolation. Um, it's not about social networks. People in rural markets uh, often have very, very good social networks. That's why they stay there. But it is about role models and finding people who help envision you a different outcome, a different life. And in that context, the closure of banks, the closure of hospitals, the lack of broadband in those uh, neighborhoods is a very, good, very big impediment to uh, helping people lift out of their current circumstance. And of course, there are issues around uh, opioids and addiction in those markets that are significantly higher than they are uh, in the bigger cities. All these things are holding smaller town people back. We're doing a conference in early October on some of the solutions to some of these uh, issues. It's a place we're very excited. Very good. Um, one you know, thing I heard you say today at the conference that I was, you know, you don't hear um, you know, Fed presidents discuss this a lot, but you made a comment on, sort of in passing on things going on in the markets, um, the rise of passive investments and indexing, sort of getting the markets to flow more with broad trends than underlying fundamentals. And you, any, you care to expand on that in any way or, or the context of what you were making those comments on? Right. I, I was talking about uh, consumers being exposed. And uh, it's been researched by many people. Uh, uh, Americans have more invested in the stock market today as a percent of their assets than they did 10, 20, or 30 years ago. But it's also true that within the stock market, more has gone to passive investing versus active investing. Now, there's nothing wrong with passive investing. I'm, I'm mostly, I've maybe even completely passive uh, invested. Uh, it's lower cost. But it also uh, is subject to the flow of funds. And so those uh, investments often move much more based on whether money's coming in and money's going out 
than on the specific prospects of any particular company uh, in that fund. And so as a result, uh, you know, when the mood goes south, right, confidence falters uh, and the stock market starts to fall, consumers feel the hit broadly and universally. That's the point I was trying to get to. Yeah, I mean, there, there's an interesting question. How many active managers do you need to be marginally setting the price, given mm -hmm. that you have a broad-based basket? That is just taking the market, the active people yeah. setting the prices. So it's, it's an interesting philosophical debate on what is the right level of active management and where we will get. Yeah, um, very much. And, uh, and, and how much the Fed watches this stuff in terms of the wealth effect impacting consumer spending. But you hear, um, you know, as the markets fall, that is when those consumer expectations often do fall in. And I've read and I do take seriously those analyses that have researched the wealth effect. It's not, you know, mega galactic, but I think there's enough of one that it's something to take seriously as we think about what's happening with the economy. Very good. We're, we're wrapping down the end of the conversation here. Um, as you think about the upcoming July decision, any thoughts as you go from contemplating 25 to 50, if you're, as you read it, how you would decide between going one versus two cuts at the beginning of a, of a cutting cycle if you decide it's appropriate? Well, you've been pretty assumptive in your question. Uh, here's how I think about it, and this is not necessarily how the markets think about it, but it's how I think about it, which is uh, after many, many years of forward guidance in our memo, including in the first half of this year the word patient, we've actually now got a memo that has no forward guidance in it. And that's actually how I think about it. I think mm -hmm. about it as a no forward guidance uh, memo. I, I also know, and it's acknowledged in the memo, that the risks we saw three or four weeks ago were more tilted to the downside than balanced. But we haven't said in that memo where we're going or what we're doing. So the data is going to come in, and we're about halfway through the cycle. So uh, I know that I will see before it's time to make a decision um, inflation numbers, the PCE. I'll see consumer spending, uh, both uh, retail sales and the consumer spending numbers. Um, and we'll see GDP for the second quarter. Uh, we'll also have another a bunch of indicators on confidence, both business and consumer, that will come in. So I'm paying a lot of attention uh, to those before landing on where I want to go with this. Very good. Thank you for all your, your commentary. Good. Thank you for the time. I appreciate being here. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.